the old pilot's plain tales. The Airman's Cross. I was recently visiting a prehistoric monument. No, not Captain Jeff, but a henge within which is a circle of standing stones. It's just west of Amesbury, in the beautiful countryside of Wiltshire in England. Its history stretches back to the Neolithic period, and it forms part of a complex set of earthworks that have been of great interest to archaeologists for centuries. Indeed, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and is more commonly called Stonehenge. My wife and I both remember the days as children when we had unfettered access to the stones and could freely walk amongst them, but there is a more recent monument there that I had no knowledge of. It's called the Airman's Cross. The presence of this memorial to an early pioneer of aviation so clearly demonstrates the short period in history that flying encompasses particularly when standing beside a monument that goes way back into prehistory some 4,000 years. The Emmons Cross was erected in 1912, only 108 years ago, a mere nine years after Wilbur first took to the air near to Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. Despite the experimental nature of flying back in the early 1900s, I find it quite surprising that, even though earlier heavier-than-air flying machines were fragile, and there was little understanding of the principles of flight, that more serious accidents didn't occur, and that it took five years before this burgeoning industry suffered its first fatality. The unfortunate chap was a passenger of Orville Wright, who had been conducting demonstration flights for the U.S. Army at Fort Myer. The brothers had an army contract to build and fly a two-man flying machine, which would then have to complete a set of trials over a measured course. In addition to the contract worth $25,000, about 600000 in today's money, the Wright brothers would receive a $2,500 bonus for every mile per hour of speed faster than 40 miles an hour that they could achieve. There was a committee of five officers to evaluate the Wright Flyer's performance, including First Lieutenant Selfridge, who had in fact designed his own aircraft, Red Wing. Red Wing was the first aircraft to fly in Canada, but Baldwin, the pilot, had crashed it. However, Selfridge successfully piloted its successor, White Wing, eventually completing flights of several hundred yards. Orville had already demonstrated their new Wright military flyer successfully several times, carrying a major aloft for an hour and a quarter in a single flight. When Selfridge climbed into the flimsy machine, Orville took off and began a gentle orbit before things began to go wrong. He described the flight in a letter to his brother. On the fourth round, everything seemingly working much better and smoother than any former flight, I started on a larger circuit with less abrupt turns. It was on the very first slow turn that the trouble began. A hurried glance behind revealed nothing wrong, but I decided to shut off the power 
and descend as soon as the machine could be faced in a direction where a landing could be made. This decision was hardly reached. In fact, I suppose it was not over two or three seconds from the time the first taps were heard until two big thumps, which gave the machine a terrible shaking, showed that something had broken. The machine suddenly turned to the right, and I immediately shut off the power. Quick as a flash, the machine turned down in front and started straight for the ground. Our course for 50 feet was within a very few degrees of the perpendicular. Lieutenant Selfridge, up to this time, had not uttered a word, though he took a hasty glance behind when the propeller broke and turned once or twice to look into my face, evidently to see what I thought of the situation. But when the machine turned head first for the ground, he exclaimed, Oh, oh, in an almost inaudible voice. The crash had been caused by a failure of the right-hand propeller, which hit a wire, bracing the rear vertical rudder, and then came away completely. The wire was ripped out of its fastening, and without restraint the rudder twisted horizontally and forced the aircraft into a steep dive. Although Orville shut off the engine and fights the aircraft to soften the impact, the flyer hit nose first and threw both men forward against the remaining bracing wires. Selfridge's head struck the wooden framework as he was ejected from the wreckage and he was rendered unconscious. Orville was also badly injured, fracturing his hip and breaking his leg plus several ribs. These injuries would trouble him for the rest of his life. Sadly, Thomas Selfridge had fractured his skull and although he underwent surgery, he died a few hours later without regaining consciousness. The unfortunate lieutenant was buried with full military honours in Arlington National Cemetery, adjacent to Fort Myer. Following the crash, and as a direct result of Selfridge's death, the pilots of the U.S. Army were instructed to wear large heavy headgear, reminiscent of early football helmets, for protection. It was nearly a year later before the next victim to aeronautics was to occur in this new adventure of flying. The Wright brothers were keen to dispel any reluctance in Europe to accept that they had developed a working heavier-than-air aircraft. Wilbur sailed for France with a machine to demonstrate the flyer to the public, and more specifically the military, whilst Orville was doing the same at home. The European flights impressed everyone, with Wilbur giving rise to a procession of officers, journalists and statesmen. Before returning to the States, Wilbur had a European business agent and had already set up a factory in Le Mans, building Wright flyers. Eugène Lefebvre was the chief pilot for the French Wright Company. A talented engineer, accomplished sportsman and cycling champion, he was one of many French sportsmen attracted to aviation because of the adventure and the competitive spirit that animated the first meetings of aviators. He promoted the Wright aircraft by entering in air races such as the Grande Semaine d'Aviation at Reims, and with Louis Blériot and Hubert Latham represented France in the Gordon Bennett Trophy. 
This event started with poor weather, but shortly after 10am, Moise Guffrey made the first attempt to get away. His little red REP monoplane furiously spluttered and struggled across the gummy field. Back and forth it went, but despite the roars of encouragement from the huge crowd, it wouldn't come unstuck. Guffroy retired in disgust when his 15-minute time limit was up. Towards the end of a disappointing first day, the weather eased, and Lefebvre took off to give the crowd an early display of stunt flying. The New York Times described his manoeuvres thus. Lefebvre came driving at the crowd tribunes, turned in the nick of time, went sailing off, swooped down again, till he made the flags on the pillars and the plumes on the ladies' hats flutter, and so played about at will for our applause. For this he was fined four dollars by the judges for displaying excessive recklessness and daring. Only nine days after the end of the Reims event, Lefebvre was killed in a crash at Gervisi, when the plane he was testing dropped to the ground from a height of twenty feet. This qualified him to take his place as the first pilot to die whilst flying an aircraft and the second ever casualty to aviation. As the sport of flying grew, so did the distressing stories of accidents. And Capitaine Fervenand Ferber, a French scientist and army officer, was killed in a taxiing accident not long after Eugène Lefebvre. Leon Delagrange had his skull broken when he fell with his machine from a height of 65 feet and was crushed underneath the wreckage. He had been turning at high speed against the wind when the left wing of his Blériot monoplane broke and the other wing collapsed. The machine plunged to the ground and Delagrange was caught under the weight of the motor. Harriet Quimby had the dubious honour of becoming the first woman pilot to die when she and her passenger fell from their aircraft whilst a thousand feet above the ground at the third annual Boston Aviation Meet in 1912. Slowly the list grows, until also in 1912 we come across the name that can be found on the Airman's Cross at Stonehenge, that of Captain Eustace Broke Lorraine. My discovery of the cross, not really a discovery, as thousands if not millions of others will have passed by it whilst visiting Stonehenge, was really the colonel that started this tale, but I would have just filed it away had it not been for an interesting fact in Captain Lorraine's background. Reading about him, my curiosity was piqued by the name of a senior officer under whom Lorraine had served. Colonel Trenchard. The Lorraine family could be said to have been of the aristocracy, with a good smattering of knighthoods being awarded to the family. Eustace's mother was Lady Frederica Mary Horatia, knee broke, and his father, Rear Admiral Sir Lambton Lorraine, eleventh baronet of Kirkhall in Northumberland, an estate which the family had owned since the fifteenth century. Eustace was the oldest of four siblings. He had a brother and two sisters, 
and as such was the heir to Bamford Hall and the estate. As one might expect from the family at the time, Eustace received a privileged education at Eton and entered the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. He was gazetted as a second lieutenant with the Grenadier Guards on the 5th of July 1899 and promoted to lieutenant in May 1900. He fought in the First Boer War and awarded both the Queen's Medal and the King's Medal with additional clasps. I mention this to show that he wasn't just a rich dilettante, but a fighting man. Having been wounded in 1903, he almost left the army, but was persuaded to remain and take the post of Assistant Commandant of the South Nigeria Regiment. In 1906, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. It was in 1908 that he met Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Trenchard of the Royal Scots Fusiliers whilst serving under him in Nigeria in the West Africa Frontier Force. The two became friends and continued to correspond once Eustace had returned to England. It was whilst he was in Africa that Lorraine first heard about Louis Blériot and his flight across the English Channel. An adventurous man, the news stirred his interest, and on returning to England, he managed to persuade the War Office to pay for his flight training until he was good enough to be granted the Royal Aero Club Certificate number 154, dated the 7th of November 1911. By this time, Trenchard was serving in Ireland, but Eustace kept him abreast of his progress, and in the summer of 1912 he wrote to him, urging him to also take up flying. Trenchard was greatly impressed by Lorraine's words, which read, You've no idea what you're missing. Come and see men like ants crawling. At that time, Trenchard was looking for a new direction, and after reading Lorraine's letter, he decided to try to learn to fly himself. By now, Captain Lorraine had been attached to Number 2 Company of the Air Battalion, which was based at Lark Hill on Salisbury Plain, which, following the formation of the Royal Flying Corps later that year, was designated Number 3 Squadron RFC. Less than two months later, and exactly 13 years since he joined the Army, Lorraine and his observer, Staff Sergeant Wilson, were flying a Newport monoplane out of Lark Hill on a routine practice sortie. They were executing a tight turn when the aircraft fell towards the ground and crashed. Wilson was killed outright, and although Lorraine was speedily transported to Bulford Hospital in a horse-drawn ambulance, he succumbed to his wounds only a few minutes after arriving. Lorraine and Wilson were the very first Flying Corps personnel to die in an aircraft crash whilst on duty. Later in the day, an order was issued, which stated, Flying will continue this evening as usual, a tradition that has continued. At the site of the crash, a stone cross memorial was placed in the middle of the grass island at the junction of two roads. The inscription reads, To the memory of Captain Lorraine and Staff Sergeant Wilson, who, whilst flying on duty, 
met with a fatal accident near this spot on July the 5th, 1912, erected by their comrades. His body was returned to Bramford Hall and a funeral cortege proceeded through the village, accompanied by a detachment of Grenadier Guards, to the church where he was buried with full military honours. The title and lands moved on to Eustace's brother, but he died childless, so the baronessy died with him. Had it not been for the accident on Salisbury Plain, the village of Bramford could have been a very different place today. The cross has been moved slightly, but it's still within sight of its old location. At Eustace's suggestion, Colonel Trenchard went on to become a pilot himself, certificate number 270, and he served the Royal Flying Corps with such distinction that by 1917 he had become the Chief of the Air Staff. It was through Trenchard's determined persuasion that on the 1st of April 1918, the United Kingdom became the first country in the world to have an independent air force, and he is rightly known as the father of the Royal Air Force. If you've enjoyed this story, then please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, or on the podcatcher of your choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.